KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Barbara Brink concedes the race for San Diego mayor. Uh, first, I want to congratulate Todd Gloria as the next mayor of San Diego. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The Biden-Harris win means California needs a new senator. This is one of the most coveted political posts in the state of California. We'll hear what it means to one new citizen to cast a ballot in his first election. And the story of a white woman who learned about prejudice when she encountered it in Japan. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This morning, Barbara Bree conceded to Todd Gloria in the San Diego mayor's race. The race had been predicted as a close call, but in the end, Gloria won with 56% of the vote. Here to fill us in is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Allison. Thanks. So now, Barbara Bree did wait several days to concede, but here's what she said today. I offered him my congratulations yesterday, and I've acknowledged that he's going to have some difficult choices ahead, and that... The community needs to understand that and that the community needs to be at the table um, as these difficult decisions are made. Andrew, what else did Bree say in her concession announcement? Well, she said that, you know, looking back on the campaign, she was surprised and disappointed by some of the negative attacks against her. She mentioned um, what she called special interests. You know, there was a super PAC funded by the San Diego Regional Chamber, County Regional Chamber of Commerce and also the uh, a city employees union that basically you know, suggested to Republicans that she was a progressive and the same group then suggested to Democrats and independents that she was uh, the Republican choice for mayor. She felt that that was dishonest. She said that the media did not properly call it out as dishonest. But she said, you know, uh, Todd Gloria has a, a difficult road ahead of him and that she wishes him the best. What do you see as the dynamic that led to her defeat and Gloria's victory? Well, I think that it's certainly true that Bree had a disadvantage in terms of fundraising, in terms of 
the endorsements from elected officials. I mean, Todd Gloria was in Sacramento in the state assembly and managed to get the endorsement of every Democratic assembly member, a host of uh, elected officials in state government, including Governor Gavin Newsom, Senator Kamala Harris. So he certainly came into this with an advantage. But I think, you know, with the margin of victory that we're seeing with Todd Gloria, we can't just chalk this up to money. He clearly had a message that resonated with voters. I asked him uh, last week when he was making some remarks and and the race wasn't fully settled, but it was still pretty clear that he was going to win, um, if he saw this as a mandate from the voters. And he said he wanted to respect the vote counting process, of course, but he certainly hopes that it is, that, uh, you know, this was a campaign where he went in talking about issues like homelessness, like affordable housing, like transportation and climate change. Bree was choosing to focus much more on issues uh, like the city's 101 Ash Street deal, this real estate transaction that um, has cost taxpayers a lot of money and has been pretty disastrous and other things. And I think he can come out of this uh, race really feeling like the issues that he, he wanted to focus on are the issues that the voters cared about. Will Bree remain in San Diego City politics, do you think? Well, you know, she chose not to run for a second term on the city council, so her time in elected office will be over. She has said many times uh, she doesn't plan on running for election again, although today she said, you know, never say never. Um, But it sounded like uh, from her virtual press conference this morning that she does plan on staying engaged in city issues. She mentioned a couple of times she's got an extensive contact list, and we see this often from candidates who lose elections. They keep that email uh, listserv and and use it to sort of promote their own ideas, maybe advocate for things in city politics. So I I think it's probably safe to say that, you know, we we haven't heard the last from Barbara Bree. Uh, She, you know, certainly wants to continue pushing issues that she cares about, like um, accountability in city government. Um, She's always been very passionate about the issue of short-term vacation rentals, which the next mayor and next city council might um, be trying to tackle uh, on their own. So um, I expect that she won't be completely out of the picture. So Gloria will have an eight-to-one Democratic majority on the council. Um, That looks good for him. But just because there's such a strong Democratic majority, does that mean they'll agree on policy? Well, certainly not. I think there we we haven't seen the policy divisions yet among all of the uh, c- people who will be coming into city council. Um, there's going to be a majority of brand new city council members, by the way. It's uh, five uh, newly elected council members. Uh, but I think that he is going to certainly have more options in terms of trying to put together a majority for uh, that would back his agenda. This has not been true for um, any mayor in in recent history, really. Um, Most of the mayors have had, uh, most of the Republican mayors have had a uh, Democratic majority on the city council. And um, the only Democratic mayor that we had in in recent history or in in the last 20 years, let's say, um, Bob Fildner was was not exactly a guy who um, who got along with everyone, even the Democrats. So there are a lot of things that I think he can accomplish, uh, and he, you know, 
um, among the sort of things that are that he has going for him are not just that eight one uh, apparent democratic majority on the city council, but also he knows the city bureaucracy. He was on the city council for eight years. He served six months as interim mayor. He has direct experience in this executive position. He was endorsed by the Municipal Employees Association, which represents, uh, you know, a huge number of uh, city employees. Well, he has quite a bit to tackle, so probably a good thing he has some allies on his side. We've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you, Alison. Mayor-elect Todd Gloria issued this statement this morning. He says, I want to thank Councilmember Bree for her service to our city, and I wish her and her family well. It's time to put the campaign behind us and come together as San Diegans to resolve the many challenges we face. Gloria continues, voters have embraced my vision of creating a city that works for all of us. It's now time to turn that vision into reality. I am honored to be the next mayor of San Diego. As Kamala Harris moves into her newly elected position as the first woman vice president, California will be looking for a new senator. Speculation has already started about who Governor Newsom may tap to fill Harris's seat, and that appointment may also break new ground. Joining me is Phil Willon, who covers Governor Gavin Newsom and California politics for the Los Angeles Times. Phil, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, remind us, if you would, give us a tutorial. How are Senate seats filled when there's a vacancy between elections in California? Uh, Well, there are two options. One is Governor Newsom could call a special election. No one expects that to happen. Um, The other is he has the authority to appoint um, a replacement who will serve out the remainder of her term the next two, two years. And that's what everyone expects. He could uh, theoretically appoint someone who would just serve the two years and then step down, kind of a placeholder. But again, no one expects that to happen. This is this is one of the most coveted political posts in the state of California. It will impact the, his political legacy as well as whoever he appoints. Now, just to follow a question on that, does the governor's appointment have to be confirmed by anyone if he does choose to go that way? Does it have to be confirmed by California legislators? No, it's an executive appointment. So um, he could do the same thing, I understand, with, I think, county supervisors as well. Now, several names have already been floated as possible replacements for Kamala Harris. One of them is Congresswoman Karen Bass. She was also apparently on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president. Tell us about her. Um, She's a Los Angeles uh, congresswoman who used to serve as the um, Speaker of the Assembly up here in Sacramento, uh, very well regarded in democratic circles, known as a kind of a real legislator, someone who works well with others um, within her party, even some Republicans as well. She is part of the kind of the political power base in L.A. growing up over the past 30 years. She was tight with um, former L.A. Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, among others. She, she's someone that a lot of people think is a rising star in the party. Um, she didn't get over the finish line with the VP um, selection, obviously. So this may be, it won't be a real consolation prize, but it would be, uh, it would kind of put her in the minds of uh, everyone nationally. And I suppose one consideration to appointing someone from Congress if for a Democratic governor would be whether or not that's a safe Democratic seat. Is that Karen Bass's uh, seat safe for a Democrat? Yes, it's, it's very safe. Same with Barbara Lee in uh, the East Bay area up, 
up into the Oakland area. That's opposed to someone like Katie Porter, who is really well liked, is a good fundraiser. Um, again, another rising star in the Democratic Party who has a lot of name recognition in the state and nationwide. But she's in a, our, she's in a Republican leaning district. And um, the expectation is uh, that her, all of her elections going forward will be hotly contested, especially in 2022, which is a kind of a midterm election when usually the opposing party, whoever's in the White House, uh, makes some gains. So um, I'm sure that Speaker Pelosi wouldn't want to lose another member of the Democratic caucus. Now, California's Attorney General Javier Becerra could also be tapped to fill Harris's seat. Would his appointment be a first for California in any way? Yeah, California has never had a Latino or Latina uh, U.S. senator. It would be a first. And he's one of the names that we keep hearing who's on the short list, um, along with Secretary of State Alex Padilla, as far as a statewide officer, and uh, either would be historic. Now, Javier Becerra used to work in Washington, right? What was his previous position? He was a longtime congressman from Los Angeles. I remember before I came to the LA Times, I used to work for the paper in Tampa, Florida. And I remember as in the mid-90s interviewing him about Cuba policy and other policy. So he was he knows, knows the turf really well. One thing, you see a lot of speculation now that um, about who would be in President Biden's cabinet, and his name pops up there as well as a potential attorney general or head of Homeland Security. Yeah, and one of the people on your list in, in your LA Times article is Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia. He probably doesn't have the profile of some of the other people that we've been talking about. Why is he on your list as a possible replacement for Harris? He is a very loyal ally of um, Governor Newsom. He endorsed him early on in the 2018 governor's race, uh, one, of the, one of the first major Latino uh, politicians in the state to do so, um, along with Alex Padilla as well. He's also a, an openly gay mayor of Long Beach, and his his appointment, along with being Latino, um, being openly gay would be a historic appointment for the U.S. Senate. Um, he has a compelling story about his mother and stepfather both passed away at, because of uh, COVID, so he has firsthand knowledge of the destruction of that virus and the devastation that it causes. And um, but primarily, I mean, it's because he has been a longtime backer of uh, Gavin Newsom. That's what kind of made him rise. I still think he's kind of I don't want to say a long shot, maybe a medium shot, but you never know. It's- also, perhaps a, a long shot on, on your list is Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins from San Diego, who is also openly gay and she's mentioned on your list. So what strengths do you think she would bring to the job? Uh, well, she's a she's a, a very able legislator. She's been leading the Senate really well. She's aligned with uh, Governor Newsom on a lot of uh, a lot of progressive issues. One of which is affordable housing, which is one of her main political goals and and priorities up here in Sacramento. They've had some bumps in the road between the two. I remember covering some legislation where um, the governor kind of and, and her did not get along. I, I wouldn't put her in the top tier of a potential replacement, but. Newsom has been holding all this really close to the vest, so it's hard to tell uh, what considerations he'll take into account. Now, Phil, considering the close number between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, Governor Newsom would probably want to pick a replacement quickly. What's the time frame on an appointment? Well, um, he doesn't 
it, a lot of it depends on when Harris will will step down. You have the I think the electoral college doesn't officially vote and award electors until December. So it probably wouldn't be before that. The new Congress is sworn in in early January. But again, Harris is an incumbent senator. So her term is not over. So she doesn't have to step down until the second before she gets sworn in as vice president. And um, I guess there's the potential that Newsom could just name uh, her successor tomorrow, just as someone in waiting. And the expectation is that it'll be a while before that happens. There's also the uncertainty of having a, uh, a lame duck president and a Republican majority now and what that all means. I've been speaking with reporter Phil Willon with the Los Angeles Times. And Phil, thank you so much. Thank you. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer looks at the extraordinary career of Senator Kamala Harris and how the Biden-Harris victory will allow her to break through the glass ceiling that's kept other female candidates from attaining the vice presidency. The rise of Kamala Harris from San Francisco District Attorney in 2004 to Vice President-elect in 2020 is truly an only-in-America kind of story, and one that may transform the notion of what a winning presidential ticket looks like forever. Having Senator Harris on the ticket was a complete game-changer. That's Amy Allison of She the People, an Oakland-based organization which advocates for women of color in politics. While it may take a while to verify the final vote count in places like Georgia and Arizona, Allison thinks Harris deserves a lot of credit for getting Biden over the finish line. Kamala Harris brought with her black women, Latinas, Asian Americans, immigrants. She brought so many people who saw the kind of country, the kind of government they want through her candidacy. Harris, the daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica, who was born in Oakland, inspires a lot of hometown pride from the city's mayor, Libby Schaff. Vice President Kamala Harris will mean everything for a city like Oakland. Schaff is a longtime friend and supporter of Harris, who she says will present Oakland in a more favorable light. In such sharp contrast to Donald Trump's every uh, mention of Oakland is a libelous slander of our diversity, of our safety, of our reputation. And she never hesitates to celebrate her roots as an Oaklander. Since Joe Biden named Harris as his running mate, she has not surprisingly faced vicious attacks and name-calling. President Trump called her a monster. Trump, Georgia Senator David Perdue, and many others deliberately mispronounce her name. In anticipation of the nastiness and personal attacks directed at Senator Harris, Sacramento lobbyist Samantha Corbin notes there was a concerted effort to discourage the media's use of tropes and discriminatory labels for Harris. I will tell you there was a pretty robust campaign of advocates um, who came out and said, literally, we've got her back and really started pushing back on that type of coverage. Governor Gavin Newsom knows Kamala Harris well from the days when he was mayor of San Francisco and she was district attorney. Newsom hailed the Biden-Harris victory as a critical moment for California. And so I just couldn't be more happy for her. and It's profoundly significant for the state. Democrats will have a long to-do list on issues ranging from the pandemic to economic recovery, climate change, and more. Their failure to win control of the Senate will hamper that agenda. But Samantha Corbin, who helped expose the culture of bias, harassment, and abuse aimed at women in Sacramento, calls Harris's rise to vice president-elect a pivotal moment. This will change 
for generations how young women think about themselves and their place in this country and their place in politics, and that's really an amazing thing. The nation is still getting to know Kamala Harris, and how impressions of her are shaped in the coming years will help determine if there is yet another higher office in her future. That was KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Postmates spent more than $200 million to bankroll Prop 22, the most expensive proposition in California history. It will allow app-based companies to classify their workers as a new kind of independent contractor under state law. Sam Harnett covers labor and technology for KQED's Silicon Valley desk. He spoke to California Report magazine host Sasha Coca about why Prop 22 will change how some people work in our state. Basically, the argument is, is that all the Uber drivers and DoorDash, the food deliverers and Instacart shoppers that you see, the gig companies argue that these are uh, entrepreneurs, that they have their own businesses, that they're independent and they're not workers. And because they're not workers, they aren't entitled to benefits like um, guaranteed minimum wage, overtime, workers' compensation or unemployment insurance. Well, Uber and Lyft say this is going to be good for drivers. What is the benefit package that they're offering? I mean, the benefit package is really slippery. I mean, the, the, the easiest way to define it is it's watered down employee benefits. So instead of workers' compensation, uh, the workers would be able to buy insurance. Instead of getting health insurance, they would be able to buy health care subsidies. Uh, instead of having guaranteed minimum wage, they would have 120% of minimum wage guaranteed for engaged driving time. But of course, a lot of time working for gig apps means waiting for jobs, which is not going to go into that calculation. What about unemployment? I know during the pandemic, there were drivers who no longer had as many rides, and then they had a hard time getting unemployment. In the new category, there's no unemployment insurance. Um, There's been some studies that have suggested that Uber, uh, Lyft, and other gig companies would have had to pay California hundreds of millions of dollars in unemployment insurance. But because they've always classified their workers as contractors, they haven't paid a dime into the state unemployment insurance fund. So yeah, we've seen with the pandemic that not not having unemployment for these workers has been pretty catastrophic. So Sam, what could the passage of this proposition mean for other industries? Right now, the law is uh, limited to companies that use apps for transportation and delivery, but there are lots of companies uh, that could create apps, say, for their trucking business. Or you can see a company that maybe does warehouse fulfillment, making an app, and then and then arguing to sort of push 
what's established with Prop 22 a little farther. I mean, any corporation that could take advantage of this sub-employee category of worker is going to go for it because it is way cheaper than having to pay for employee benefits. Uh, and then on top of all that, uh, Lyft, Uber, and the other gig companies have said they already want to pursue this nationally, uh, which is something they've been working on already. The, the Trump Department of Labor actually, um, before the election, um, uh, issued a ruling that would make it easier for gig companies to classify workers as contractors. And the gig companies are already trying to push this kind of third way sub-employee worker category through federally. What about drivers who are relieved that this has passed, who feel like it is going to give them more flexibility? There are so many gig workers who are really desperate for income and who are happy to have any chance to make any money. And so there is a sentiment with a lot of these gig workers of like, you know what, it might not be perfect, but I'm, I just need money and I don't want that to change. Sam Harnett covers labor and technology for KQED's Silicon Valley Bureau. And he was speaking with California Report Magazine host Sasha Coca. Some California voters are casting a ballot for the first time during a pandemic and a contentious national election. Raul Alvarez lives on Catalina Island. He and his 23-year-old daughter Diana filled out their ballots together this year. This was her second time voting and her dad's first since he just became a citizen in 2018. Diana sat down to talk with him about finally casting a vote. My dad specifically went to his P.O. box, saw that we got the ballots... And then he brought them back to his apartment and was like, hey, Diana, let's vote. For you, being your second time just has to do with your age. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're only 23. But I mean, for me, it had to be because I wasn't a citizen and I became a citizen recently. And this is the first elections that I'm allowed to vote. I mean, I became a citizen after the previous election. And do you remember, like, the reason why you felt so strongly a need to become a citizen? Well, sure. The right to vote is not a, is you, you earn that by becoming a citizen. And it's a really complicated process, you know, the elections and everything. And you learn more and then you want to know more. So voting is, is, is a great thing, you know. And so people take it for granted because they always have had the privilege, you know, the, the right to vote. For somebody that never had it and then they have it, well, they want to take advantage of it, you know, and be part of it, you know? I remember us both, like, opening it up. And obviously, like, the big thing is voting for the next president of the United States. And I had gone over a couple of the propositions, too. But I wasn't really prepared for any of the judges that we were going to be voting for. And I remember, Papa, we just kind of, like, looked at each other and we're like, we're going to have to do some research while looking yeah. this over. I, I honestly, I Google it. I, you know, I, yeah. and I said, wait a second. It's not about just, oh, that guy's Democrat. Let's vote. No, 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 no. It has to do with... Right now on the internet, there's a lot of track records of what the people have really done and stuff. Uh, is and that's who you vote for, you know. And hopefully, your vote will make the difference. We had like different opinions on it. I remember the vote is a personal thing. There are certain things we share, you know, as families, as communities, but also you yourself as a person. Yeah, and I remember when we got to the president. 
Like, we both immediately kind of knew exactly who we were voting for. But we also, like, kind of had a laugh about it just because it was (laughs) so obvious for you and me who we were going to vote for. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then also just saying Kanye West's name up there. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. You were probably the best person I could vote with because I feel like I'm a bit stressed out with anyone else. But you're, like, a very good listener to me rambling on and on. especially about like propositions and stuff because I already had some thoughts about it so it was kind of cool like getting to see like how you voted versus me because I feel like it's such a solo activity or at least it was the last time I voted because I just went in into a stuffy little box but this time it was kind of like sit down do your homework drink some coffee and just vote with your dad talking about it it was kind of fun actually that was Diana Alvarez speaking with her father, Raul Alvarez, who voted for the first time this election. And now to a tragedy of California's past. Sunday marked two years since the town of Paradise and nearby communities were destroyed by our state's deadliest and most destructive wildfire. The campfire killed 85 people and displaced tens of thousands, and two years later, plenty of people are still wrestling with the aftermath, like insurance policies and the state laws that govern them. The California Report's Lily Jamali traveled to North Carolina to report on one company that's now under state scrutiny. Days before pandemic lockdowns began in March, I visited a cafe on a charming strip in Flat Rock near Asheville to meet up with Jan and Tony Dunn. Like so many others, they lost their home in paradise in the campfire. They live here now. But the memory of November 8, 2018 looms large. They found themselves doing constant battle with their insurance company, Nationwide Insurance. Yeah, we, we stopped communicating with them verbally. Um, because it was just way too much of a problem. It was very stressful. Unlike some other companies, Nationwide asked them to itemize everything they lost. Oh, God, it's, it's horrible and grueling. I mean, we've had, we've made a list that our list has 6,200 items in it, 6,200 items. And, and it's just crazy to have to go through room by room and remember, okay, yeah, my, my office drawer, what was in there. And it's, it's painful and traumatic. It's not right that anybody would ask you to do that. The Duns say Nationwide also promised to cover the cost of moving to North Carolina, then changed its mind. We moved 2,700 miles and they said, we're only going to pay you to move back to paradise. And, and it's like, a, 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 that's not what the state law says. B, that's not what you told It also just makes no sense. There's no paradise left. Meanwhile, in Paradise, fire survivor Jeannie Webb got so frustrated, she started a Facebook page where nationwide customers exchange tips and vent. Everything's a nickel and dime issue where you've got to back them all the way up to the wall, stick the Department of Insurance on them, fight with them for six months to get one penny. Every single thing is like that with them, and it's exhausting. 
Nationwide isn't the only insurer facing these criticisms. But industry insiders say the company has a reputation for dragging out the process of paying claims. And unlike others, Nationwide has resisted some requests by State Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara aimed at streamlining that process. In a statement, the company told the California report it can't comment on individual claims, but it's working in good faith to, quote, fully honor our commitments to members based on the coverage that policyholders purchased for that time of loss. A spokesperson for Commissioner Lara's office says it's opened an audit known as a market conduct exam to determine if Nationwide has been underestimating what it owes to Californians who lost homes and businesses in 2018. Meanwhile, Tony Dunn says climate-related disasters that followed in the two years after the campfire show it wasn't an isolated event. I really hope for all the people that are going to come after us that things change. That story was by California Report host Lily Jamali. After decades of trying to get ahead of the problem of the West's big fires, it seems we're still behind. The massive fires that have burned this year don't just alter forests, they impact water supplies for people and the environment. But it could refocus efforts to better manage forests. In the final story of our series on where water and fire meet in the West, Ron Dungan from KJZZ in Phoenix reports. In June of 2002, nearly half a million acres burned in the Arizona high country. The Rodeo Chattisky fire was the largest fire in Arizona history at the time, and it got everyone's attention. There was too much fuel in the forest, and something needed to be done. So I think the first thing to to recognize is that the Southwest and California are, are built to burn. That's Arizona State University professor Stephen Pine. We get lots of dry lightning. We're, we're the epicenter for lightning-caused fires in the United States. Ponderosa forests evolved with fire. Modest-sized fires would burn grasses, small trees, and brush, but leave the big trees standing. Then overgrazing and fire suppression removed grasses and allowed small trees to grow unchecked. By the time foresters figured out the problem, megafires were on the way. Ethan Amick is with the Grand Canyon Trust. He remembers 10,000-acre thinning projects in the 90s, which felt like significant progress. We realized that we were not working at the scale at which wildfire was working. And so Arizona ranchers, conservationists, politicians, foresters, and local communities put aside their differences and came up with a plan, the Four Forest Restoration Initiative, FORFRI for short. Amick says the goal was to thin more than 2 million acres across the state, from the Grand Canyon to New Mexico. The, the problem is not getting smaller. The problem is only getting larger in, in Arizona. The same can be said across the West. There are two ways to thin the forest, cutting and burning. Forfry did both. The target for cutting is small diameter trees. That's different from traditional logging, which takes the big, fire-resistant ones. Elvie Barton is with Salt River Project, which provides power and water for the Phoenix metro area through a series of dams. She says forests aren't just for wildlife and hiking. They're often headwaters for crucial rivers and streams the region's biggest cities rely on. We all have overgrown forests. We have endangered species. We have um, large catastrophic wildfires that are, you know, coming through and just devastating these landscapes and having these horrible impacts on communities and the water supplies. Although Forfry seemed to address the problem on paper, companies hired to thin the forest failed to deliver. The forest kept growing, and in 2011, the Wallow Fire took out another half a million acres in eastern Arizona, 
Climate change, drought, and growing housing development have made the problem more complex. Different ecosystems have different fire regimes, and today's fires can jump from one to the next. Fire historian Pines says that firefighters are allowing some fires to burn within certain parameters. I'm seeing a lot of from fire officers on the ground that we're not going to get ahead of this in that way. We're riding the tiger. There are too many things coming at us too fast, changing things too rapidly. We're having to work with what we're given. Using prescribed burns to thin the forest is complicated, but Forfry is beginning to meet its targets. The project has also done work in springs and watershed restoration. And not all wildfires are catastrophic. Some places that burn recover, like Canyon Creek, which burned in Rodeo Chetiskai. The Forest Service hopes to ramp up thinning in the near future, but Grand Canyon Trust's Ethan Amick wonders if we can correct past mistakes. On the other hand, I actually feel very optimistic and sometimes foolishly so, that we can solve this problem. And I, and I really think the question is, can we do it in time? Charlie Esther is with Salt River Project. He says he thinks that four fry can work if it moves forward one step at a time. We're not giving up. We're going to continue. The Forest Service is not giving up. They're going to continue. The collaborative is not giving up. We, we all have to work together. We all have this common goal. And I'm very positive about the future of, of our forest ecosystem. Eighteen years later, you can still see the scars from Rodeo Chetiskai at Canyon Creek. But there are trees standing, and clear water is flowing. You'll find trout in the stream, elk in the hills, coyotes. More fires are coming. The only question is how hot they will burn and how much ground they will consume. I'm Ron Dungan in Phoenix, Arizona. Critics say the Army isn't doing enough to address sexual harassment and sexual assault in the ranks. The outcry comes after the killing this spring of Fort Hood soldier Vanessa Guion. Her family says Guion's alleged killer had been harassing her, but she was afraid to report it. But Army leaders say they are addressing the issue. From San Antonio, Jolene Almendares reports for the American Home Front. Thousands of people have joined forces online and in protests across the country to make their voices heard about rape, sexual harassment, and assault in the military. San Antonio Army veteran Sarah is one of them. She says she experienced everything from sexual comments to attempted rape. It started in basic training and then got worse. That's when everything else started happening, like the guys slapping my ass, them making comments about the things that they would do. And I mean, and it went all the way from privates to master sergeants. Sarah asked that we not use her last name because she fears harassment or revenge. She says those kinds of sexual comments were normal in the military. You work in an environment as a female and it's a predominantly male environment and men talk, you know, men say things that they shouldn't say and it's just a joke. I mean, we had guys that would come in and tell us about what they did to their wife last night. Sarah says a sergeant sexually assaulted her after a night of playing pool and drinking. He took photos of her and showed other soldiers they worked with. She says later a lieutenant tried to rape her at a friend's apartment. The Army says none of this is supposed to happen. In 2006, it launched the Sexual Harassment Assault Response and Prevention Program called SHARP. Jim Hellis oversees the Army SHARP program. These are issues of critical importance, not only to our readiness, but to taking care of soldiers. It is not of importance to every commander up and down the chain of command. This is how he says SHARP is supposed to work. Soldiers who are harassed or assaulted can file either a restricted or unrestricted report. 
Restricted reports allow them to get medical help and other services and are withheld from the chain of command, but they can't seek legal action against the perpetrator. Unrestricted reports allow legal action, but the soldier's chain of command is told about the investigation. According to the Department of Defense, about 25% of women in the military reported sexual harassment in 2018. The numbers increased about 10% the next year. Reported sexual assault increased about 3%. But the Army doesn't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Hellis says it's a sign that the SHARP program is making a difference. What we've seen over the last couple of years is we've seen increases in the numbers of reports and the percentage of cases uh, that are being reported with women. I, I take that as signs that there is an increase in confidence in the chain of command and in confidence in the system to, uh, to, to report uh, incidents of sexual assault, sexual harassment. There's no way to know if the increased number of reports are because the SHARP program is working well or if more people are being victimized. But there's a gap in what is being reported and what people are experiencing. For instance, Sarah never reported the comments, sexual assault or attempted rape. So I had other friends that I would talk to and they would tell me like, well, I made a SHARP complaint and nothing ever got done about it. And her experience in the Army isn't unique. I can't think of one woman that can say she's never experienced sexual harassment. That's Deshauna Barber, CEO of the Service Women's Action Network, known as SWAN. She's been an Army reservist for around 10 years. Barber said Army culture lacks a basic understanding of what sexual harassment means, despite regular training on it. And she says even when sex crimes are reported, perpetrators aren't necessarily discharged from the Army or even prosecuted. I see soldiers get kicked out of the military so often for, for DUIs and drug-related offenses. I have yet to see someone get kicked out for sexual harassment or sexual assault. And that is the absolute problem. There are efforts in Congress to take on some of the barriers soldiers face when reporting sex crimes. But unless the military culture changes, activists say that might still not be enough. I'm Jolene Almendares in San Antonio. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John, along with Maureen Cavanaugh. The feeling of being an outsider is the theme explored in San Diego writer Susan Sleeper's story titled Gaijin. It's Sleeper's first novel, and it's a coming-of-age tale that sheds light on the uncomfortable relationship between the residents of Okinawa, Japan, and the American community centered on the military base there. Sarah Sleeper joins us. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you, Allison. Good. Well, now, start off by telling us what the title of your book means. That's Gaijin. Why did you choose that title? Sure. Well, the word Gaijin is a Japanese word. That's It's not a slur exactly, but it is not necessarily favorable. And it tends to refer to a 
a person who is not Japanese as sort of like an unwanted intruder, unwanted alien. Your book is telling the story of a girl, Lucy, who goes to Japan in search of a love that she's lost and in search of a Japanese culture that she saw as very refined and and delicate, you know, like haiku poems and, and delicate tea sets. What did she actually discover when she got there? Well, of course, Lucy um, had studied Japan, so she knew something about it. But when she got to the island of Okinawa, which is very south of mainland Japan, she discovered that there was a lot more going on beneath the surface with regard to the relationship between the Japanese and the American military. And that's something that, though she had heard of, she was surprised to see the rancor that was there and daily street protests and um, allegations of crimes against the Americans. So she was uh, caught off guard by the hostility that she encountered. She arrives in Okinawa and finds that she's not exactly welcome there. Talk a bit about what the problem is for Americans there. Yeah, so it's a very interesting situation there. And I think not everyone in the public, you know, we don't always pay attention to what's going on in every other country. But, you know, the Americans have been in Japan since World War II with military bases. And um, in a place like Okinawa, we take up, the American military takes up quite a bit of land. And um, some of the people there really don't like us to be there. So they protest in the streets asking for the American military to leave. Shinzo Abe, uh, the prime minister of Japan, had made a promise to reduce American military presence, and that has not happened. And so every time an American service person commits a crime or just causes some kind of trouble, the protests ramp back up, and they are spilling out into the streets outside the base. So that's what my character encounters, uh, much to her surprise, after there's been a crime allegation. So you make it very clear that this is not an autobiography. You know, the heroine, Lucy, is not you. But you did spend some years in Japan. There are so many roots to this word gaijin, aren't there, from, from skin color to economic status to political power. How did you explore all those in your book? There are several layers or levels of being um, unwelcome in whatever circumstances the character is in. One, of course, is my protagonist, Lucy, who finds herself perhaps unwelcome by not everybody, but some people that she meets there. And then her love interest has an alienated relationship with his family. So he's like a gaijin in his own family. And of course, unfortunately, just like in most cultures, um, people find a reason to discriminate against someone. And in this case, sometimes the mainlanders um, looked at the Okinawans. And there's a little bit of discrimination that goes back and forth there from the traditional, um, like people from Tokyo, let's say, to people from Okinawa. Now, your heroine was in her early 20s, and, and you describe her naivety very well. But you yourself are in your 50s currently. What was it like to get into the head and heart of a much younger woman? Was, was that a challenge? Right, and thank you for pointing my age out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be proud um, of it. Yeah, I am proud of it because you learn a lot as you go along, and it's you you have the better ability to express things as you you know get more mature. So, it was it was fun to go into Lucy's brain. It was also a challenge 
and she's definitely not me. Um, but certainly I recall all the feelings of that age and how strongly you feel about things, even if you may be misguided. Um, you certainly can feel passionately. You certainly can feel driven to things that might not always be good for you. So um, I just wanted to show a person who had a decent heart, but maybe had some misguided perceptions. And so she was able to mature through her experiences in this other country. Now, you talk about all the support that you got along the way in, in writing this story. How would you describe the, the writing community in San Diego? Oh, you know, I feel so lucky because I have a, a gang, a gaggle, a gang of really great friends who are really good writers. And we don't all write the same thing. So we write different things, but we come together to help each other, give commentary, share our work. And so that's been absolutely invaluable. And um, we have actually a very strong community here of writers. And I think um, San Diego Writers Inc., which is a nonprofit that supports writers, I teach there. And it's been, it's in Liberty Station. It's also a really important San Diego resource for anyone who's trying to break into the writing community here. I would suggest contacting them for sure. So Sarah, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Alison, thank you. I appreciate this conversation a lot. We've been speaking with San Diego author Sarah Sleeper, whose first novel is called Gaijin. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.